Hey, let's uh, turn together to the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we're studying through the Gospel of Luke. The Bible says, man will not live by bread alone. Have you tried that this week? Did you try just living by bread alone? Just on the physical world? He says, you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, have already decided where you're going to eat lunch. I know that's a dangerous subject to even broach at this moment. You've already decided where you're going to eat lunch. You've already thought about it. You've already you've got your plan in place. Now, how many of you had a similar plan that you were going to come in here and feed on the Word of God? You've got to have that same mindset. The Spirit's like the wind, Jesus said. It blows where it will, but you've got to put your sails up. All right, you've got to say, here, I want to hear what God says in His Word. Worship is not a spectator sport. You sit down and watch the ball game, but you can't sit down and just hear a sermon. That's not the way that it works. You've got to get the Bible in your hand. You've got to get your pen out. You've got to get ready to go. Just, I'm not saying that because I'm the preacher. I'm saying that because if you want to hear from the Lord, you've got to have Jesus. Here's the way he put it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. God can say something and you miss it because you didn't have the, the sails up, so to speak. And I'm saying that you can hear from the Lord, not because I'm preaching, but because I'm preaching from this book. This is the word of God. Don't live by bread alone, but what proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Luke chapter 7, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he, went, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority and soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been, excuse me, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let's pray together. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, mighty Savior, precious friend. We sing these songs and we love these songs because we believe they're true. Father, thank you for the demonstration of a man who made Jesus marvel. Wow, what a description to be placed on a human being. And Father, I pray that you'd help these words to be what they are, alive. The Bible is alive and active. We pray that our hearts, our minds, our ears are in tune with the living word of God, that you'd speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. About two years ago, I think I found the perfect spot. I didn't know if I'd ever find it, but Julie and I, we went on an anniversary trip to the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. And we stayed at a place that to get there, uh, you, you, you got off the interstate got off the main road, got off the side road, got off the side side road. In fact, we drove so far down this one road, I began to get a little bit concerned. We didn't know where we were. We following the directions and finally saw the sign of the place. I mean, it was out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody around, just this lodge. And the lodge, behind the lodge, had this awesome mountain stream. Perfect. 
it was fall, the leaves were changing color, and I just sat down with Julie at that water, and it was a little waterfall going by, the, the, the leaves were exploding in their colors, and I just had this thought to myself, can I just stay here forever? No cell phone reception, no, no, uh, no, uh, no I love my children, but no, no needy children at the moment, no diapers to change, and I just said, can we, the fresh mountain air, can we just stay here? And you know what the answer to the question is? No. <laughs> no, you don't just get to stay there. After he finished these sayings, there comes a moment when Jesus finishes teaching and he starts doing. In fact, what Luke gives us at the tail end of chapter 6, if you have a red letter edition of your Bible, you see the second half of Luke 6 is all in red. Jesus is teaching. In fact, it's, it's, it's Luke's version of what Matthew records in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. We talk about being on the mountaintop with God, and if you've ever been there, you just want to stay there. But there comes a moment when Jesus finishes the sayings, he finishes teaching, and he, gets, he transitions into doing. And, and, and there's a lesson there for us. I love Sundays at 1045. I love to come in here, I love to sing, I love to, to hear God's word, I love to preach God's word, I love to study God's word, but there's also such a thing at Monday at 6 a.m., you know what I'm saying? When the alarm goes off, and, uh, and, and that part of the week begins. Uh, most of us in this room can be categorized in one of two ways. There are thinkers, and then there are doers. Again, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you are thinkers? You love to read and you love to study things like doctrine and get out the systematic the- theology textbook and go to, uh, go, go to read and get together and discuss and to think and to plan and to strategize and to memorize the scripture. You're thinkers. You love to do those sorts of things. And then, again, you don't have to raise your hand. Some of you are doers. And, and, and you've already thought this sermon's probably going on too long. <laughs> All right, just wrap it up so we can get out there and go do something, right? You heard what? like scripture said right there are different parts of the body of christ and there's some parts of your body that are thinking parts and then there's some parts that are doing parts but it's the same body let me just put it this way which did jesus do did he think or did he do jesus does both now there does come a time when the thinkers must be doers and the doers must always be careful to discern that all they're doing is rooted in jesus's actual teaching Because you can think, 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 think and never do, but you can also be really, really active and not have it actually grounded in what the Scripture says. And both are equally dangerous for the church. I'll put it to you this way. The devil is perfectly fine for you to accurately interpret the Bible so as long as you don't actually do it. He's also perfectly fine for you to fill up your life with a busy schedule with lots of activity so long as it does not have a gospel-centered end. So, Jesus is thinker and a doer. We want to do both. And what we'll see here is Jesus' actions are rooted in his teaching. Let's just get a little bit of the tail end of Jesus' teaching at the end of Luke chapter 6, where he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It's a great question, isn't it? In fact, the Scripture teaches us from the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew 7, at the end of the age, many people are going to come to him saying, Lord, Lord, and in essence, he's going to say, I never knew you. You didn't do what I told you to do. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, see it both, hearing the word and then doing them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Right? So he heard what he should do and he did it. You don't want to build a foundation in the wrong place. 
and then you don't want to know how to accurately build a foundation, but not do it. Okay, we made that point enough. All right, I'm getting the eyes from the doers. You made your point. Okay. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when, and when, what's it say? Not if, when a flood arose. Hey, if you've been around Rocky Mount for a number of years, you know about floods, right? When a flood arose, the stream broke against the house. Some of you have actually lived through something like this, right? And could, not, uh, and could not shake it because it had been well built. When we get to Luke chapter 7, what we're going to see is a series of uh, scenes where that's exactly what's happening, where the floodwaters have risen. We're going to see in Luke's scene a series of events where somebody's having the worst day of their life. It's going to start with the text we've already read, the centurion. It's going to continue on to a widow whose son has died. And it's going to keep going on as we go through Luke. In fact, we're going to see a, a, a series of five or six scenes where somebody's having the worst day that they've ever had. And some of you have lived already through the worst day. Some of us, the worst day is yet still to come. So what I want to do is just take this scene, this one scene, and for a few moments this morning, just break it down over some familiar questions. You remember in Luke chapter 1, Luke said, here's my whole purpose in writing this gospel, to give you an orderly account so that you may have confidence in what you have been taught to believe. So, so Luke's an orderly writer. So when you get your old questions, you learned them a long time ago. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? We're going to take those six questions. We're going to investigate this scene, answer those questions, and you'll see Luke's a pretty gifted writer, of course, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That scene after scene that we investigate, we're going to be able to answer these questions. And let me go on and give you a little hint. The how and the why, the answer is going to be the same over and over and over. It's the who, what, when, and where that change. And you can go on and let that rest in your life. Because whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever's going on, the how and the why, they're going to remain constant. So let's investigate. First of all, let's ask the question, who? What question are we asking? All right. We'll make you say it twice and we'll sound like a bunch of owls. But we'll just who, and it tells us, verse 2, now a centurion had a servant. And this, it goes on to say in verse 9 that this man that we're going to talk about, the who, he, verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, marvels at somebody. So who is this guy that made Jesus marvel? What is it about the centurion that when Jesus interacts with him, Jesus is just blown away. Jesus marveled at finding deep faith in an unlikely man. That's the answer to our question, who? In fact, this is a miracle unlike any miracle in all the Bible. Without even seeing the sufferer, without touching him, our Lord restores health to a dying man by a single word. He speaks, and the man is cured. He commands, and the disease departs. So, We're going to be studying through Luke, so go on and mark it down. This is a major theme for the next several chapters. Jesus speaks and things change. So let me give you a few things that we uh, discern about this man from this scene. We're still under the question of who, talking about the centurion. As one, we see in these verses the kindness, the kindness of the centurion. We talk about setting ourselves where the word of God speaks. Let's Let's just ask a simple question. Are you a kind person? Will those who know you best describe you that way? Yeah, he's kind. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. 
Are you a kind person? This, this centurion is a, is a kind person. What does kindness mean? Kindness means that you walk through life not focusing entirely on yourself and how other people can help you. Kindness means you actually walk through life wondering how you can help other people. Let me ask you this. In this scene, what is the centurion's obstacle? It's actually not his own issue, is it? He, he's, he's, uh, he's going through great adversity, not because something's personally happening to him, but because something's happening to somebody that he cares about. That's what kindness means. Uh, too often in life, we can go through, and, and if it doesn't affect us personally, we just say, well, it doesn't even affect us. It's kindness that leads to action. It's kindness that says, okay, I've heard that people don't have clean drinking water somewhere, but that's their problem. Kindness leads you to get on the airplane and go. Again, the fruit of the Spirit is, is kindness. Now, Matthew tells us from this very same scene that the, that the servant had been paralyzed and was suffering greatly. So, so some sort of accident, we're not given the details, some sort of accident has happened, and this servant is left in constant pain, agonizing pain, and though it's not the centurion's pain, he, he deals with it in a very personal way. We see his kindness in the treatment of his servant, he takes pains to restore him to health. We see kindness in his feelings to the Jewish people. Let's just put it very clear, clear, uh, plainly. Centurions did not often show kindness to the Jewish people. And there's a great divide between the Gentile soldier like this and the Jewish people. And nine times out of ten, the Roman soldiers would come along and, and physically assault, if, if not worse, to the Jewish people. But here's a centurion who's, who's showing kindness the elders of the community say of him, he's worthy, Jesus, to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Gentiles and Jews are supposed to be enemies, but here are Jews pleading with Jesus to help a Gentile man. This is a very rare occurrence. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's straight from Romans chapter 12. If you have an enemy and you treat him kindly, he's going to have a hard time remaining your enemy. The Bible says he's just going to heap coals on his head. Someone strikes you on the one cheek, turn to him the other also, is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. So he, he's kind to his servant, he's kind to the Jewish people. And kindness is not what we would expect from a Roman centurion. Most Roman centurions who are given that position of authority abuse the power in order to damage or hurt other people. Habits and actions like what's displayed in the centurion's life are not taught in the Roman army or by Roman philosophy. Where does this kindness come from? Again, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. So, so it seems evident that the Holy Spirit's already at work in this man's life. So again, do others describe you as, as kind? J.C. Ryle, an author that I love to read from the 19th century, he said, if there is one feature in Jesus' character more notable than another, it is his unwearied kindness. So first of all, just answering the simple question, who? The centurion is a kind man. Secondly, we notice the humility of the centurion. Here's what he speaks to Jesus. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. The work of the Holy Spirit is to show us our unworthiness, our own sin and corruption, to put us in our right place, 
meaning that the world does not revolve around us and our preferences and our opinions. I mean, don't, it's just about everywhere you go these days. Everyone's shouting about their preferences, their opinions, so on and so forth. The Holy Spirit makes us lowly. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more consistent theme in all the Bible. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Psalm 194, verse 4. Proverbs 3, 34. Towards the scorners, God is scornful, but to the humble, He gives favor. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Of all places, to find an Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in a man, a Roman centurion, loving justice, <clears throat> excuse me, doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud. You hear that? God opposes the proud. You want to make God your enemy? Be proud. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isaiah 66, 2, this is the one to whom I will look, declares the Lord. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. I mean, humility is a hard thing to even talk about. As soon as you start thinking that you're humble, you're not humble anymore, right? There's the work of God in a man or a woman's life. Luke 18, 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Who? The centurion's a kind man. He's a humble man. Three, we also notice that the centurion is a man of faith. But say the word and let my servant be healed. Now, where did he get this sort of faith from? If you're in Luke 7, just flip back to Luke chapter 5, in verse 17, and do you see what happens there? What's the scene there? Jesus heals a paralytic. So somehow, some way, this centurion whose servant is paralyzed has probably heard that here's a man who heals paralytics, right? It had happened just a chapter and a half previous. When the centurion, verse 3, heard about Jesus... How will they call on him in whom they've not, what, heard? Some people in the world, some people in Rocky Mount aren't calling upon Jesus because they've not heard about Jesus. How can, that's what Paul asks, how can they, how can they call upon them in whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without one being sent? That's Bible, that's scripture, right? So he'd heard about him. And then he believed in him. Now, faith like this was rare and Jesus was on the earth. If you read through the Gospels, he's always getting these sorts of questions. Show us a sign. Show us a sign from heaven, from the Jewish people. None ought to have been so believing as the children of those who had come out of slavery through the wilderness and into the promised land. Nobody in the Gospels ought to have had faith like those who weekly in the synagogue went to worship, to sing, and to hear the word of God. But it's not those who go into the synagogue to worship. It's the centurion who built the synagogue for them who actually believes God. Mark it down. It's true of these Jewish people in Luke 7. It's true of people today. Familiarity with the things of God does not guarantee faith that honors God. Let me say that again. Familiarity with the things of God does not guarantee faith that honors God. These Jewish folks here in Luke 7, they gathered every single week. Every single week they sang the songs. They had the Bible read to them. They had the Bible explained to them. And when Jesus Christ, the word of God come in the flesh, came to their town, it's the centurion who looks at him and believes and not them. 
it's still possible to gather every single week, sing the songs, hear the word, be familiar with it, but not having a faith that honors him. The centurion believed Jesus' power to heal, though he had never seen it himself. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet, what does the Bible say? And yet believe. Have you ever seen heaven? Do you believe you're going there? Do you believe it? Why, why do you believe in heaven? Behold, let not your hearts be troubled. I go. I, Jesus said, he, this is a personal work. I go and prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may also be. I've never seen it. But I believe because he said so. Can you hear right now Jesus pleading and interceding for you at the right hand of the Father? Can you hear him doing it right now? You can't hear him. But his word says that's exactly what he's doing. We see the man who made Jesus marvel, a man of kindness, a man of humility, and a man of faith. These are still the very things that get Jesus' attention. Kindness, humility, and faith. Now, we live in a day now where most all of us have a cell phone. And they've gotten pretty good at it that you get reception just about everywhere you go except a little patch on Highway 64 between Rocky Mountain and Raleigh, right? I don't know what the deal is with that Bermuda Triangle area there. But most everywhere else, you get a signal, right? And, and, you, and you've got on your cell phone that little uh, icon, right? One bar or two bars. And we've all seen the commercial, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Well, well uh, uh, hearing from God is through his word. So, so you got the potential to have a clear signal. So if you're not hearing from God, the issue with the signal is not from him, right? It's from us. And I'll tell you, there's nothing that, that uh, closes off the signal so fast as sin and unbelief. It's not that God cannot speak. It's that we will not listen. But one of the most interesting things we learn from the Bible is, is this. you got somewhere that, 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 that uh, you've kind of talking to somebody on the cell phone and they start coming in and out and uh and then you start walking around trying to find right trying to find where the signal is and then you look down and, and then all the bars go up and then you can hear one another perfectly clear do you know where it is that you can actually hear god the clearest is in suffering did you know that it seems strange but what actually happens when you walk through suffering is all the other voices go quiet. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now he makes me lie down in all sorts of nice places and streams like I was in the Shenandoah Valley. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. But notice this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You are with me. And he's always with us. It's always with us. I will never leave you or forsake you. But do you know when it seems that we're most attuned to his presence, his nearness, is in the valley of the shadow of death. So that brings us to our second question. What's going on in this scene? And the short answer is that there's suffering going on. The world has fallen. The evidence is everywhere. This was a man who was kind and he was humble and he was full of faith. Yet that did not preclude him from suffering. Can I say it again? This man was kind, he was humble, and he was full of faith. That did not preclude him from suffering. Now, there's a distorted doctrine of teaching out there that teaches, hey, if you'll just be kind, and you'll just be humble, and you've got enough faith, you'll be immune from suffering. 
Now, you've heard me, everything I've said been based on this word. So I'll say it again. This man was kind, he was humble, and he was full of faith, but that did not preclude him from suffering. Even when we do walk through the valley of the shadow of death, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. Now, we are having a scene here where this guy's having the worst day of his life. And that's going to be a day that we're all going to go through. So let's talk about what's going on. There's suffering going on here. The world has fallen and the evidence is everywhere. The Bible teaches us the world is being redeemed. But that redemption is not yet complete. One of the most consistent criticisms of the Bible and of God goes like this. If God is all-loving and all-powerful, why is there so much suffering? He must either not be all-powerful and can't do anything about it, or he must not be loving because he's chosen not to do something about it, right? You've heard that, right? So what do we do with that? What's the Bible's teaching about suffering? Well, first of all, let's just ask this simple question. Did Abraham suffer? Did Moses suffer? Did Ruth suffer? Did Esther suffer? Did Jeremiah suffer? Did Paul suffer? Did Peter suffer? Did Jesus Christ suffer? Did you know that you're redeemed by his suffering? So, so the Bible makes a comparison to the suffering of the world. The suffering is the result of the fall. When sin is full born, it brings forth what? Death. So God is redeeming the world. And it's, it's appropriate, it's okay to use that in the present tense. And I'll tell you, the guarantee of his redemptive work is Christ on the cross. He began the work of redemption. He's going to fulfill the work of redemption. And the Bible compares this present suffering in Romans 8 to birth pains. Now, here's where I do not speak, obviously, from experience. Birth pains are tremendous suffering. In fact, they're a mark of what? The fall. Isn't that what God said? From now, for, so from now on, you will bring forth ch- children in pain and in suffering and when the birth pangs are going on the suffering is tremendous that's what the bible says is going on right now the suffering that we're experiencing in the world either either uh, nationally with with uh, uh, natural disasters as we call them and then the suffering in your own life those of you who've who've uh, uh, gone through loss of a loved one who who've endured cancer or sickness or disease these are the birth pangs that are preceding the full redemption. Now, here's a simple example. I've seen it happen three times. And two months out, prayerfully, I've seen it happen a fourth time. The pain of bringing forth children is followed up by immeasurable joy. Now, again, not my personal pain, but as a spectator of said pain, the moment the child comes, it's not that the suffering <laughs> wasn't real, but it's no longer the dominant thought. Not when that child gets laid in the arms and you're holding the child and there's life. And you've been through the ringer and the suffering. Okay, we, we, we've got it. So 2 Corinthians 4, 16 Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So that's why it becomes a criticism of those who walk only by sight 
He's either loving, not loving, or not powerful. But if you look at the things that are unseen by faith, you say, no, he is redeeming it. And when the redemption has come, we will look back and call it such slight and momentary affliction compared with the glory that's being revealed. The Bible teaches if you're humble, kind, and have faith, you'll still suffer because God is making you holy. And so holiness requires that we go through the Lord's furnace, so to speak. Jeremiah 9, 23, let not the rich man boast in his riches or the wise man boast in his wisdom or the mighty man boast in his might, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands the Lord. And the way we are, you see what it said, not to boast in riches, might, wisdom. Suffering exposes those three things for what they are. There's some things you'll go through and it doesn't matter how much money you have. Some things you'll go through, it doesn't matter how strong your body is. Some things that you'll go through and it doesn't matter how intelligent you are. Suffering liberates us from the delusion that we're self-sufficient. Let me put it this way. The authority, power, and nearness of Jesus is most clearly displayed during seasons of what? Suffering. So what's going on suffering? When is it going on? Look what it says, verse 2. Just got a couple more questions to answer. Now, centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death. So this isn't just a cold the man has. He's at the point of death. When does this go on? The critical hour, hanging by a thread. Have you ever been there before? Some of you might say, I'm there right now. Jesus does his best work when all the other options have been exhausted. When we come to the point, as it said, when Jesus is all we have, we realize Jesus is all we need. But because we're so fragile, most of us don't really get that until we're in a position where it's true. Now, that's a a nice statement, but to really understand it, most of us, again, have to go through the valley of the shadow of death. So it's happening at this critical moment. Where is it happening? Verse number one, after he had finished all these things in the hearing of the people, he entered where? Capernaum. Now, just back up with me to the Gospel of Matthew. So if you're in Luke, back up two books. I want you to see where this happens. What is going on in Capernaum? Do you see Matthew chapter 8, verse 5? See Matthew chapter 8, verse 5? When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him. Okay, so you see that's the parallel account in the Gospel of Matthews, Capernaum. And then again, Jesus has just preached the Sermon on the Mount. So that's our win. Jesus just preached the Sermon on the Mount. So, so you say, okay, I've tried to get my sails up and I'm following along and there's going to be suffering in the world and I even though I'm humble and kind and full of faith, still suffering coming. That's true, but here's one thing we want to guard against, even though that is true. I want you to see, hear something Jesus said when he was in Capernaum. Matthew 6, verse 25. (laughs) Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. This is difficult, isn't it? There's going to be suffering, but we're not supposed to be anxious. Even though we're full of faith, Hardship still comes, but do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And then then go on down to what it says, verse 32, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And many of you could say what? Amen to that, right? Sufficient for today is its own trouble. So Jesus, again, is not saying, do not be anxious about your life. Wink, it's all going to turn out okay. And when he says that and he leaves the mountain, he walks into scenes where things are not okay. And we got to be okay with things not being okay, okay? Because he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The same shepherd that led you to the stream is the same shepherd that's going to lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't, leave, he doesn't lead you to the valley of the shadow of death and then drop you off and say, okay, I'll see you on the other side. And he says, I'll walk with you through it. And I want to encourage you, if you're in that season right now, you've not been forsaken. Even though it might feel that way, have the faith to believe that it's not that way. Two last questions, why and how? Because these are going to be the constant answers. Why does this happen? We get that from Jesus' words. I tell you, even in Israel, not even in Israel, have I found such faith. Why does this happen? Because the man believes that Jesus is mighty to save. And then our last question that we'll answer is, is how does this happen? (laughs) How does this happen? I, too, am a man under authority, the centurion says. That's the key word for the whole se- section, by the way, is authority. Let me go on and give you the, the uh, outline of Luke. Jesus is going to demonstrate authority over disease. He's going to demonstrate authority over nature. He's going to demonstrate authority over demons. And then he's going to demonstrate authority over salvation. No one takes my life from me, he says but I lay it down of my own accord. So here's what the guy says. Uh, He says, hey, I'm a soldier. I'm a centurion. Obviously, that means I've got 100 men under me. When I tell them to do something, they do it, all right? I never served in the military. My two brothers are in the Marines. I I know enough to know when their drill sergeant says run, they don't say in a minute. When the drill sergeant says time to get up, they don't say I'd like to hit the snooze button. I'm a man under authority. And so this man who has authority looks at Jesus and he identifies, here's a man who's really got authority. The soldier says, I tell one guy to come and he comes. And I tell another go and he goes. And this is very interesting in Luke's orderly account that he chooses those two commands. Because you know that those are also the two commands of Jesus. And they go in that order. Come and then go. Do you remember a place where Jesus says, come to me? All who are weary. Are you weary? Are you weary? All who are weary and heavy laden. You don't have to raise your hand, but does that describe your life right now? You had some restless nights, some sleepless evenings, some roll over and it's 3 a.m., roll back over, roll back over, it's 4 a.m. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The only place to find rest is in the presence of God. It's even possible to rest in the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death. It's even possible to rest in that place. Now, he also says go, by the way. He says both. And let's come full circle. 
the teaching of Jesus begins by saying, you've got to come to me. You've got to repent. You've got to turn around, head to my, my direction. You've got to come to me. And once you've come to him, once he's restored you, once you've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, then he says, now you're going to go for me. Anywhere in the Bible you've ever heard Jesus say go? This is interesting. It's more than a coincidence. Here are the full great commission. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you know who that commission is given to? That commission is given to 100% of the people who answered that first call to come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. And Jesus loves to send out the rested in Christ to proclaim to the others that they can also come now to him. You see how it works? Come to me, give you rest, go for me, go in my name. Now, again, especially an appeal to all the doers, you want to be real careful in trying to answer that second command of Jesus to go for him if you're not obedient to that first command to come to him, to drink the living water, and so on and, and, and so forth. Now, the clearest we ever hear the voice of God, the clearest we hear from him, is in a season of suffering, but not our own, the suffering of the Son of God. It's when he speaks the clearest, the loudest. God demonstrates his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Always, always, always allow the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to speak loudest in your life. Even, or maybe not the word, not even, especially in the valley of the shadow of death. Let's stand together. We're going to pray together. Bow your heads with me. I've got two, uh, two words, <laughs> two words for the invitation. And I'm going to take them straight from Luke 7. These are the two words. The first one, the first command is come unto me. If you're here this morning and you're just worn, slam out, heavy laden, weary, You've been in the valley of the shadow of death. It may, may, be, may be like the centurion. It's not even your personal suffering. It's somebody that you deeply care about. And sometimes, in some ways, that can even be a heavier burden. The invitation is for you to rest in him. To rest in him. To trust his authority. Perhaps during the invitation you just have a burden so heavy you want to, want to come and prayerfully seek the face of the Lord during the time of invitation. Sometimes it's just something about putting action to our convictions. So the first invitation is to come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden. And the second is, is to go. We want to be a people who go. Go to make disciples. The only, the only people who can make disciples are disciples. So maybe if, maybe if you're a season of life and you're just trying to go and you're trying to win souls and you're trying to, first of all, you, wanna, you, you want to prayerfully discern if you're resting in him and then it's that joy you have in the Lord that's propelling you out. And Father, we pray for both. We want to be a people who do both, who teach accurate doctrine, but then do it. And then our activities, our plans, our are things we're seeking to do. They're rooted in the teaching. Thank you for Jesus, that he does have all authority. 
There is no scenario, no situation on the planet today that he doesn't have authority over. But yes, there are birth pangs all around, the suffering of this world. Help us to know that they are slight and momentary, even when they don't feel that way, that they're preparing for us. They're liberating us from self-sufficiency. They're exposing the um, shallowness of our wealth, wisdom, and might. And at the same time, they're displaying your perfect strength. In my weakness, your strength is made perfect. So, Father, lead our time of invitation. Thank you for Jesus, mighty Savior, precious friend. In Jesus' name, amen.